0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark, called the Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. I Just out of curiosity, if you would raise your hand, how many of you were here last week to hear Brian's message? Just raise your hand. Yeah, that's great. I thought the message was, you know, pretty average. Uh <laughs> I'd give it maybe 5 out of 10-ish, you know, like compared to what I'm about to do today, which is going to be great. Uh, Last week, yeah, it, it, it was good. Now, maybe you're worried about me right now, and you probably should be, but I'm just getting you ready for the text we're looking at together this morning as we continue our series as a church called The Way of Jesus, where we're just walking through the gospel of Mark together. And we've been saying this regularly, right? The whole point of this series is that we want to spend time with Jesus. I mean, who better to spend time with to learn the way that Jesus lived his life so that we can live our lives in the same way. Way And if you're following on your notes this morning, one of the things we've been learning together in this series is that the way of Jesus is different than the way of the world. We actually see this in the very first words that Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel. In Mark 1:15, Jesus says this, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What we learn right away is Jesus says, I'm here, I'm bringing a new kind of kingdom in this world. And if you want to join me in this kingdom, you're going to have to turn away from the kingdom of this world. Because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are going to clash against each other. And there is no better example of this than the text we're going to be looking at together today. So if you haven't already, if you brought your own Bible, we'd encourage you to turn it to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 30 today. You can do that on your device as well. We'll also have it on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, this is your first week here, your first time you set foot in a church, we would love for you to take one of those black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. We want you to own that. Take that home as our gift to you. But you can find this story if you'd like to follow along on page 821 of those black Bibles. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. I'm going to pick it up there in verse 30 where it says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Now, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Mark 9 really marks the halfway point of Mark's gospel and, and Jesus' ministry. The first eight chapters of Mark, we see Jesus doing his earthly ministry in and around the area of Galilee. But then in Mark 9, he goes up to the mountain and he's transfigured in the manifest glory of God. And from there, he is going to make his way towards Jerusalem, ultimately where a cross is waiting for him. And so if I just look up at a map real quick, you can see at the very northern end, that's where most people think the transfiguration happened, right there on Mount Hermon near Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is now heading back down towards Galilee, which was his home base, and he's going to Capernaum for a final stop to kind of teach the disciples. Capernaum is probably where Peter lived, and my guess is that's where they went. They went to Peter's house, and they had some time there. And it's on that journey that Jesus gives his second of three of his predictions about his death and resurrection. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do think it's important we notice there are differences in each of the three predictions Jesus gives. In the first prediction, which was in Mark 8, Jesus talks about the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're going to reject him. Humans are going to reject Jesus. But it's interesting to note a little difference in this one. This time, Jesus says he's going to be delivered over to them. Now, in the Greek language, which the New Testament was written, this is called a divine passive. In other words, God is behind this language. It's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, where God is talking about sending the suffering servant. We are probably somewhat familiar with this verse. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That is the human condition. All of us have turned away from God and his kingdom. We've gone astray, but we're told this promise. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the same idea here, right? The Lord handed him over for the iniquity of us all. There is something divine happening in Jesus as he heads to Jerusalem, friends. I'm pointing this out because, yes, humans betrayed Jesus and rejected Jesus. But if you're following on your notes with me, it was also God's will for Jesus to suffer, die, and be raised. Never get that mixed up. This was all part of God's plan for jesus to suffer to die on a cross and to raise again from the dead because we are all like sheep who have gone astray but he wants to bring us back home with that in mind i just want us to now notice the irony of the next verses this is sort of the heart of this text look at verse 33 with me they came to capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them what were you arguing about on the road Now read verse 34 on your notes with me there. It says, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Seriously. Right? You can only shake your head at this. Again, if you're on your notes, as Jesus describes his suffering, they argue about their greatness. Talk about missing the point. Now, I don't know exactly the words and the argument they were having, but here's my best guess. Jesus had this inner circle of disciples, James, John, and Peter. And the three of them were the only three who got to witness the transfiguration up on the mountain. And can't you just picture in this walk back down from the mountain, those three guys being like, (laughs) we got to see the most incredible thing, and you weren't invited to see it. Now, if you've read the Gospels before, before, you know this is nothing new for these guys. They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest all the time. Later in chapter 10, James and John are gonna come to Jesus and say, hey, can we have the two best seats in your kingdom? Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus is talking about his upcoming sacrifice and death, what are they talking about? Which one of them is the greatest? They still cannot see that the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world. And my favorite part about this verse is the part where it says, they kept quiet. Hey guys, what are you talking about? It reminds me of one of my favorite Christmas movies, A Christmas Story, when Scott Schwartz is triple dog dare to stick his tongue on the frozen pole and they, the bell rings and everybody leaves him standing out there and this is what happens. Where's Flick? Has anyone seen Flick? Flick? Flick who? He was at recess, wasn't he? Ralphie. Do you know where Flick is? I said, has anyone seen Flick? Yes, Mr. G. Don't you just picture the disciples like that? I bet you anything it was Peter going like this, right? He's the one ratting the rest of them out. Now, it's kind of easy for me to roll my eyes at the disciples here. But if we're honest, we all have a little bit of the disciples in us, don't we? There's something in our human nature that tells us that the good life is all about being great. We want to be rich. We want to be famous. We want to be successful. Name it. We want that. That's what it means to live the good life. That's what it's going to mean to be fulfilled in this life. And this right here is where the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of this world. If you're following on your notes, the world sees greatness as climbing the ladder of success. We are fed this message every single day of our lives. The more that you get, the more that you accomplish, the more powerful you become the greater you will be in the eyes of the world. Greatness is defined by being at the top. Now, this is nothing new. From the very beginning of human history, being at the top was the goal, right? You come to Genesis 3, and the very first sin of Adam and Eve comes down to this idea where Satan comes to Eve and says, hey, listen, you should take this fruit and eat it. And she says, no, we'll die. Satan says, no, you will surely not die. And then look at what he says in verse five of Genesis three. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is at the heart of that? You will be great. You will be just like God. And Adam and Eve can't help themselves. They want to be great. They want to be their own God. And if I had to choose one word to describe this, here's the word I would use, pride. Pride. Pride is this desire we have in each of us to be greater than somebody else, even God, right? I want to be my own God. God, I've got this. I run my life. I'm good without you. And if you're following on your notes, pride is the root of all other sin. Just let that sink in a minute. When I was was in high school, I read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which is the second most influential book in my life other than the Bible. And he writes this chapter called The Greatest Sin, and this is the chapter that really helped me see some of this. And in this chapter, I finally understood pride really is the root of all sin. Look at what he says up on the screen. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't get it. Like lying, lust, gossip, hatred, anger. How does that have to do with pride? But friends, if you start to peel all those things back, like an orange, what you'll find there is pride. Take anger, right? Why do I get angry? Because somebody said something to me I don't like. Because somebody did something that I think I didn't deserve. And so out of my pride from that comes anger. There's a part in all of us, right, that would rather rule than to serve people, that would rather have power than submit to authority. We want to be noticed, not unnoticed. We want to be honored. I don't want to show honor to other people. Most of all, I think that I deserve something, and you don't. Or I don't deserve what you just said to me or did to me. And what happens if you're following is that pride leads to grasping for greatness at the expense of others. This is what I was trying to do in the introduction, right? Like if I reduce what Brian did, I elevate myself at his expense. And we may not do that so blatantly in our lives, but all of us are doing that because it exists in every human heart. Can you acknowledge there's a little bit of pride kicking around inside of you somewhere? Can we be honest enough? Can I be honest enough to admit Maybe I'm not that different than the disciples. But Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. And he has a word for us about pride and what true greatness looks like. Let's read verse 35 out loud together on our notes there. Jesus says, it says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now listen, in the first century, this would have sounded shockingly upside down. Does it still today? Absolutely. If you're following, Jesus defines greatness as being willing to serve. The word Jesus uses here in Greek is diakonos. This was just an ordinary Greek word that was used for somebody who waited tables or who washed people's feet Or even change soiled undergarments and wash them. Does that sound great to you? No. The Greek world of this time thought that was the most miserable position to be in. Plato, the great philosopher, once wrote, "How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone?" But Jesus says, "You want to be happy? You want to be great? Then become a servant." It won't be great in man's eyes, but it will be great in the kingdom of God. Again, if you're on your notes, Jesus does not reject greatness. He redefines it. And then he follows it with this really cool illustration of what it means to be a servant. Look at verses 36 and 37. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, I know today we tend to view children as these precious little things, right? But in this day and age, children were were essentially at the bottom of the social ladder. They were the least of the least. They were vulnerable. So welcoming a little child in this day and age would mean breaking social norms. Lowering yourself to somebody of a lower status and thereby risking your position of power and prestige. And friends, at no place in the gospels does Jesus diverge more from the world than he does right here, this question of greatness. The challenge to his followers is, hey, this is what it means to be great in God's eyes. And it's gonna be the polar opposite of what the world tells you. I want you to welcome people who are not normally welcomed. Or if you're on your notes, true greatness is welcoming the low and the powerless. Welcoming the who the world disregards. Again, would you agree this is completely opposite to the messages we're told every single day? When I was in high school, I... Worked at a deli that was in this very wealthy area of California. In fact, one of our customers, common customers, was Joe Montana, the 49ers quarterback. And it was always so funny to me, whenever Joe Montana would come into the deli, all of the employees would fall over themselves trying to serve him, right? And then the ordinary person, the ordinary Joe, see what I did there? Would come in afterwards, and they'd go back to their terrible service. That's not how it's supposed to be. The sad thing is, this happens in the Christian community as well, right? Where we put these speakers or these teachers or these musicians up on these pedestals. I had the chance at a conference once, I knew somebody who got us back into the green room, right? That's where all the speakers, all the famous people are. And it was just so fascinating to see. These people are being treated differently than the person serving the coffee, And Jesus would say, listen, there shouldn't be celebrity Christians. There shouldn't be celebrity pastors. Everyone should be seen as the same in the kingdom of God. We shouldn't be showing partiality to people that we put up on some pedestal. Jesus' brother, James, writes about this in the second chapter of the book he wrote. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I love his illustration now. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Upside down. Upside down, right? Greatness is serving the least. The second thing Jesus tells his disciples when he picks this child up, and this is just amazing to me, if you're on your notes, when we serve the powerless, we serve Jesus himself. And not just Jesus, he says, you serve the one who sent me, my father. Jesus would say this in Matthew 25, verse 40. Would you read this out loud with me? It says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. How we treat the hungry the thirsty, the lonely, the sick, the outcast, the imprisoned. That's how we're responding to God. For whatever is done to the least of these, whatever is done to the outcast is done for Jesus and done for the Father who sent him. When you take the position of a diaconess in your life, you are serving God. So the question becomes, how do you get to this place in our life? If we wanna be great In the kingdom of God, how do we stop climbing up the ladder of success and learn how to go down the ladder? Well, what's the opposite of pride? Humility. And I would argue that humility is the most important virtue that we could have as followers of Jesus. The problem with humility, it's difficult to get. Again, to quote Lewis in that same chapter, he writes, Humility is one of those things that if you think you have it, you don't. It reminds me of a phase that I think it was probably five, ten years ago where have you heard of a humble brag before? Where people think they're being really humble about something, but actually underneath it, there's this crazy arrogant brag happening. Here, Here are a few of my favorite humble brags. Maybe you've seen some of these. It always feels a little odd to me when I get recognized randomly in public. I never know what to say. I'm glad it doesn't happen often. Humble brag. I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? So humble. Our song has just come on the radio in our taxi. Awkward. The downside of my glamorous life, standing around for six hours at the royal wedding, my entire little toe is basically one unified blister. Poor person. Last one. I just did something very selfless. (laughs) It's already ruined, right? (laughs) But more importantly, it was genuine, and I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Is that humility? (laughs) No. Humility is often misunderstood in the world today as weakness, right? Being a doormat for other people. That is exactly how the Greeks and Romans of Jesus' day thought of it. They thought of it as the worst virtue that a person could have. They despised it. But Jesus, once again, turns the world upside down and he says, no, it's the highest virtue. For just as pride is the root of all sin, humility is the beginning of life in the kingdom. What's humility? If you're following, here's my definition of humility. Humility is a willingness to use our power and service to others. And this is how Jesus defines greatness. Greatness is getting off of the ladder, stepping down the ladder, and using whatever it is that you have to serve those who have nothing. Now, here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just ask us to be humble. He became humble, and he served us. And this is what makes our faith, the Christian faith, so unique. Our God literally set aside his power in order to serve you, in order to serve me. The greatest explanation of this is found in Philippians chapter 2. Many people believe this was a hymn that the early church would sing. But let's look at this together and see how the greatest king, the most powerful person, humbled himself for our sake. It starts this way, though, in verse 5. Paul says this. Would you read verse 5 out loud on your notes there? It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Okay, what was his mindset? Here we go. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a what? It's the same word. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the king in the kingdom of God. If you're on your notes, Jesus is the supreme example of true humility. No one ever humbled themselves more than Jesus. No one ever started so high and descended so low. No one ever gave up so much as Jesus gave up for the sake of another. And it is on this basis, the apostle Paul starts that whole thing by saying, hey, if you're in the kingdom, if you're a follower of this Jesus, have the same mindset. Look at the world the same way Jesus looked at you. Look at the people on the bottom the same way Jesus looked at you. Don't live a life where you're trying to gain power over others all the time. Live a life where you give away your power for the sake of another. And what you'll discover, he says, this is where the rubber meets the road, is that's the path to true greatness. That's the path to true joy fact, look at the rest of the hymn. Therefore, because Jesus did this, God the Father exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, King to the glory of God the Father. What is the result of Jesus' humility? His exaltation there is no one like him and jesus makes a promise to you if you're a follower of his here's his promise in luke 14:11 for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted greatness in the kingdom comes when we're willing to humble ourselves the world is telling us avoid humility God says, embrace it. Embrace it in your life because that will be the path to true greatness, true joy, and I will notice it. I will reward you for it. Listen, it's one thing to be exalted by man. You know how long that lasts? 10 minutes of fame. It's another thing to be exalted by God. You know how long that lasts? There's no ending. So friends, if that's what you want, If you want to be great in God's eyes, the question as we close becomes, how can we pursue this in our lives today? I'll just talk two steps for us as we close this out. The first step is to admit our pride and repent. The kingdom of God has come, right? He says, repent and believe the good news. No person comes to a relationship with Jesus. No person enters the kingdom of God without this, friends. It's the beginning of our journey with Jesus. The path to the kingdom starts at a cross where we come face to face with our pride, where we have to say, I need a Savior. I am a sheep who has gone astray, and without Jesus, I cannot be saved. That takes humility. It takes humility to say, I can't save myself, I can't be my own God. I have no hope apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm like Adam. I'm like Eve. I wanna be my own God. I wanna live my own life. I wanna walk my own path. But true life comes by coming face to face with the reality that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not by anything that you or I can do. So we repent. It's a churchy word. All that means is I turn away from the values of the kingdom of this world and I turn towards the values of the kingdom of God. I say that's the life, the true life, the true path to joy and meaning. One more C.S. Lewis quote for you. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Have you made that step? Jesus would put it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not sure who said this quote. I wish I could find the author. This is one of my favorite quotes about pride. They write, no one struts through the narrow gate that leads into the kingdom. No one high steps their way down the narrow path. We are sheep, not peacocks, servants, not sovereigns, If Christ is to fill our lives, we must empty ourselves. If Christ is to increase, we must decrease. Isn't that great? It is only when we take that first step of saying to him, Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man full of pride. I turn towards you and recognize you in humility. Have you done that? Have you come to the cross and understood it's by grace that you've been saved? Nothing you can do other than admit that to him because in the kingdom of God, there is no room to boast, amen? We boast in the cross of Christ alone. Second step to growing in greatness, if you're following, is we must die to self daily and pick up the towel of service. Ugh. Friends, Can we just be honest? Humility is a daily decision, isn't it? And it's a hard one every single day. Still, in my life, I've been walking with Jesus for whatever, 39 years. Daily, I still gotta swallow my pride and choose humility. And I don't do that every day. I'm just being honest with you. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Sometimes I wonder if we're settling for a form of Christianity in the United States that makes it all about me. Like, I want to be catered to. I want this kind of music. I want this kind of preaching. I want this kind of church. Instead of saying, I'm going to die to myself in order to serve others. Again, this is so upside down. Jesus asked, in the kingdom of God, hey, do you want to be rich? Then you got to be poor in spirit. Do you want to be first? I like being first. You gotta be last in the kingdom of God. Do you wanna rule? Then you gotta serve. Do you want to truly live? And this is the greatest irony of all. Then you must die to yourself every day. The night before Jesus died, they were in the upper room, right? He's preparing to take Passover with them. And what are they talking about still? Which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom? And they're talking about it because apparently they forgot to hire a diaconus to come and wash their feet in preparation for the meal. And at that moment, Jesus takes off his outer garment, fills a pitcher of water, gets a towel, gets down on his knees, and begins to wash each of these disciples' feet. He takes the role of diaconus literally. He even washes Judas's feet, right? That's how low he goes. The incarnate son of God. God in the flesh, washing these prideful, arrogant disciples' feet. And then he says these words. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will live a happy life. If you do them, I often use these very words. Every time I do a wedding ceremony, I will literally give the couple a towel. I'll bring a towel and I'll say to them, Hey, listen, the honeymoon period is going to end at some point. You're thinking it's not going to, but it's going to. And at that moment, you will have to make a daily decision. You will either decide I demand to be served by you, or I will take up the towel and serve you no matter how I feel. Now, the truth is this applies to every area of our lives, your work life. Are you willing to do the tasks and the jobs that nobody else wants to do, even if you're not even going to be noticed by that? How about your school life? Are you willing to lay aside your popularity in order to come down to somebody, meet, reach out to somebody who's on the bottom? How about in your family life? Are you willing to apologize to your kids when you do wrong to them? Gulp? That takes humility, being willing to take up the towel and serve. One of my heroes, whom Luke and Mara named their baby after, is Henry Nowen. Some of you may have heard of him before, but he was at the top, according to the world. He taught at Harvard. He was on top of the world as far as the academic world was concerned. And he felt God asking him to leave and go serve in a home where mentally ill people lived. And he did that the rest of his life. Now, according to the world, that's the dumbest thing he could have done. Why in the world would you leave that position of power in order to become a servant? According to the kingdom of God, friends, what kind of a decision was that? It's the greatest decision he could have made. The world tells you and me that true joy comes from grasping after greatness. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It comes from giving yourself away for the sake of another. And so as we close and prepare to take communion, and what a day to take communion, here's the question for us to consider this week. Will I live the way of Jesus and see serving as true greatness? Are you willing to leave today and pick up that towel daily in order to be a servant to others? Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.